You're listening, listening to Radical Radio to us 3CR. By the Community for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, the acres and acres of tar and cement yet again, and here we are on um, a fourth Wednesday of the month, Zeb Peak. Zeb Peak over there pressing buttons for us. How are Hello. Good. How are you going, Kevin? Okay, I'm Kevin. Hell, I was actually asking you how you are because I didn't beforehand. We just burst into the studio and uh, that yeah, was it. got straight to it. Mad rush. Um, uh, yeah, well, I'm well, and I actually have an announcement for everyone that was passed on to me from the Disability Resources Centre. Ah, yes. So it's about one I was going to make myself, so you can make it. Go on. <laughs> yes. Um, so the Transport for All Coalition, which includes uh, the Disability Resources Centre, Friends of the Earth Melbourne, the RTBU, Public Transport Users Association and the Melbourne East Disability Advocacy, um, they have organised... Um, an action that calls for universal access on Victoria's public transport. Um, it's tomorrow, Thursday, 24th of March, 2022. Um, so they're holding simultaneous actions across metro and regional Victoria to demonstrate how in- inaccessible our public transport system is and to demand the Victorian government delivers on its promise to provide absolutely everyone with a fully accessible public transport system. Access to public transport not only requires better infrastructure, but also a fully staffed, properly trained and supportive system. So if you are keen to join any of those actions, it's a bit last minute, but maybe some of you are free. Um, There's quite a few. Um, You can go... To, let's see if I have the ones I've got in front of me. I'll tell you what I've yeah, got. Yeah, go help. for it, Kevin. The one I'm actually going to go to is at nine thirty tomorrow morning at Brunswick Town Hall. People are going to gather as part of that campaign, um, and then at eleven o'clock tomorrow at um, four ninety two Queens Parade, which is the Clifton Hill interchange, it's sort of the Terminus Hotel area in Queens Parade. That's at eleven o'clock tomorrow. Yep. And at two thirty at Paran Town Hall in Chapel Street. Uh, people will be gathering for this cause. There's also one at Warnable Station at 11 o'clock, but I don't think too many visitors will make that. Um, and at Bairnsdale Library, at uh, I think it's 1 o'clock, but um, again, that don't think it'll matter much. But they're the three I've got for Melbourne. They're Brunswick Town Hall at 9.30, Clifton Hill, 492 Queen's Parade at 11, and 2.30 at Paran Town Hall. Have you got any others? Um, yeah, I think those are all the Melbourne ones. There's a 12pm one at Geelong and one at Bansdale. Um, but if any people forget any of those details, they can go to drc.org.au and the details should be on that website as well. It's yeah. drc.org.au. It's a campaign that's been going for years and years and years and years and years and the government always says they'll be fully accessible in 15 years' time. Um, I was on a tram last, last Sunday going down to Flinders Street to catch a train, down to the Elizabeth Street tram, and as we crossed, or we got to Collins Street stop, they said this is the last accessible stop. And you think, why, for goodness sake, can't they make the last stop accessible so that people with mobility problems don't have to stagger down that last block to get to the station? For goodness yeah, sake. makes no sense. Right, that's the sort of nonsense that um, 
nonsense in terms of what the government does, not what these people are doing in terms of what tomorrow is about. So we do urge people to get to those because it's an important issue and uh, it's just been going for so long and it's about time it was sorted out. Yep. Okay, City Limits. Did I say I was Kevin Healy? I'm not sure I did or not, but it doesn't matter. I'll pour you, I'll pour you a cup of tea. Um, if this were the new presenter on the, uh, oh, should I say this? I will. On the ABC um, Brekkie Show, Radio <laughs> National, we'd be saying our name about nine times this hour. Um, Zeb, you just keep oh, saying really? your name over and over and over. There's a cup of tea for you. Um, today's program, we are going to be looking at energy issues. We're going to be playing shortly... Um, a um, an interview that was done a couple of Sundays ago on Radio EcoShock, which is played at six in the morning here on 3CR, and so I don't think it's got the biggest listenership ever. Um, I I turn on my radio and it's off and on, so I listen, and it's a very good program. It comes out of Canada of a bloke called Alex Smith, and he did an interview with a bloke about um, climate change impact on cities. Now you've got the details of the bloke's name, haven't you? Zing? Yeah, so it's Alex Smith interviewing Timon McPherson. Um, and it's on the like newest report by the IPCC called Climate Change 2022 Impacts, Adaptation and Vulnerability. Rightio. And um, after that, we're going to be talking to Anna Langford from Friends of the Earth, um, who's going to discuss that interview with us and talk about general issues to do with climate change. So we'll be going to that in about five or six, six in a few minutes. How, how long does it go for, that interview? Have you got it down? Uh, yes, it goes for 23 minutes. Okay. So, we'll so yeah, we've, we've only got about four more minutes yeah, we'll of go, intro. We'll, we'll, no, we'll go, we'll go maybe till 10 or quarter past and then get, get yeah. Anna on for the last 20 minutes or so. We'll see how we go. Well, no, we can make quite quick. I haven't got a lot to talk about this morning, but I, I am interested in, in terms of the environment, there would say... Uh, there's a report this week that the the world heritage status of the of the Great Barrier Reef is Great Barrier Reef is again being looked at, and uh, the United Nations delegation is going to look at it. And of course, last year, uh, Susan Lee, the Minister Environment Minister, so called, and suppose she is in a sense, um, she uh, she went to overseas to to argue our case and came back and said it was great for Australia, but they hadn't in fact declared it in danger. Uh, but and of course we know that just last week she went to court and argued she had no no care, no responsibility for care for for young people in terms of her decisions on fossils and coal and. And, and and polluting the environment, so yeah. the minister for environment fights to to, to the right to keep polluting. Uh, but this morning on on an interview on on Radio National, and I'll just have a sip of tea here. Hang on, you say something, I'll have a sip of tea. This is well, yeah. Radio. Speaking of Susan Lee and um, her appealing to not have any responsibilities for kids, uh, that reminds me that another thing that's happening this week is, of course, the climate strike, Friday. which is on the twenty fifth. Um, so yes, come on down to that as well. Lots of things to be doing this that's week. That's right. Give the details of that at the moment. Then while we talk about it, it's, it's um, another. It's another school student. Gosh, school now I'll have to. Look. I know that it's. Uh, it's I think, I think it's a midday start. Twelve yeah. o'clock. Yeah. Um, but where is it? The treasury. It's going to end up in Treasury. I've got a feeling it starts somewhere else this time. I'm not sure. Okay, you talk about your. No, you, thing. Find well, okay. find <laughs> you find that? Okay, you find that. The. Uh, Anyway, this morning, Keith Pitt, the Minister for Pollution as well, he, because um, the, the United Nations, of course, has come out in the last couple of days and said Australia is a total outlier on climate change, and he attacked that and said, look, that's the, the, he's responsible for that, but we are Australia, we're our own country, and therefore we can do what we bloody well like. 
and yet Susan Lee, in 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 getting stuck into this one, says that um, that we are in fact part of well, one point. Even though she's she's opposed to them coming and doing this, she says we are part of a, a you know the the international campaign has to be against or her argument. In fact, is that Australia Australia maybe the 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 Great Barrier Reef is going downhill, so to speak, but. We had has the the addressing of climate change has to be worldwide. So you've got one minister saying we're Australia, we can do what we like, and the other one in defending her position says it's worldwide. So they get a bit confused. They need to get their act together, as I see it. These people, but uh, anyway, um, let's hope they the world body can do something about the Great Barrier Reef because our government certainly isn't. Yes. Um, okay. Got the details now yep. for the school strike for climate. It is um, 12 p.m. at the Treasury Gardens. That's the one in Nam. Um, and there are more details that you can find if you just go to schoolstrikeforclimate.com. Rightio, and that's at noon on Friday. And that's, that, again, is really important. So tomorrow and Friday are sorted out. We're sorting out people's social lives for the next couple of days. Yeah. Didn't <laughs> <laughs> good of us. <laughs> um, and again this week there was, uh, we might raise this later with Anna too, but there were record temperatures in the Antarctica, which is really worrying. I think um, there was one that was more than 30, well, someone said on the radio the other day, 40 degrees above normal because it's normally way down in the minus area. Uh, and it's it's really it read one record um, reached minus eleven, which apparently is way above where it, it has been. So that's becoming quite quite disturbing, I think. As is um, an event that happened a week or two ago. I don't think we've mentioned it yet, but Cherry Creek and Cherry Lake in in Altona. Um, again, they just found hundreds of dead fish there recently because someone, no one, we don't know yet, um, spilled some detergent or clean-up stuff that had obviously had stuff in it that kills fish and people were warned not to drink the water to take the make sure your pets don't drink it make sure they don't eat any of the fish they see on the side um the usual warnings and yet again another toxic event mm-hmm. um and the epa was trying to work out what caused it and obviously it'd be some well presume it'd be some industry along the along there somewhere um in altona which of course has you know, a lot of petrochemical and all those industries out there so um yeah so we hope they sort that one out but these things do need to be sorted out much more quickly than than we're doing it but that's another example of what's going on yeah our old mate the herald sun you'd be pleased to hear um mm. zeb mm. have a sip of tea um had a story on monday now this is interesting monday it had a story about um, the the big there's a number of big private companies that run childcare G8 Affinity Guardian Busy Bees and only about children um, three of them are, are owned offshore uh, overseas obviously therefore by overseas people but it points out that the executives and directors of these these childcare places have their private jets and Lamborghinis and trophy homes and super yachts etc and are making millions and millions. Much of the money, of course, comes from government subsidies, as we know in these areas, like the aged care um, facilities, where so much of the money comes from government. And so the story was this, and it also pointed out that one bloke who owns a lot of the real estate that they rent is also making millions, and he's having a lovely time. It's also gold for landlords, is the headline in the Herald Sun. That was Monday. Then yesterday, what do you know, 
there's a story that struggling families could face increases in childcare fees of up to $3,120 this year. So mm. struggling families in working class areas and you know, people who um, send their kids to daycare and have to are obviously working families um, are now facing massive increases even though so much of it's government and, and the, the owners are, as I say, driving Lamborghinis, getting around in their yachts and having a lovely time. So oh, there yeah. seems to be some a slight element of inequality in there somewhere. I yeah, thought. some disparity. Gosh, so depressing. <laughs> you picked that ah. one up, did you? <laughs> <laughs> I just, kudos to you, Kevin, for being able to read the Herald Sun because I just, I can't even look at it. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> speaking of, another story from the same incredible source um is and this this is like the duck they've allowed the duck season to go again full on full this time yeah and there's a number of birds they say well you know they are banned from shooting these particular birds that are endangered like the blue wing shoveler and the hardhead um but of course if you see a bird flying and you're a duck shooter you're not going to say oh, i think that's a that's a shoveler i won't shoot it yeah so a number of them it's been reported are being are being slaughtered uh, but Dan Andrews said, I know this is not, when he was asked why he allowed it to happen, I know this is not everyone's cup of tea, speaking of cups of tea, which we're doing right now. Some of us play golf like me. Some of us were at the footy last night. Some of us go shooting. I'm not about telling people what should constitute their recreational activities. And a number of um, people, including Laurie Levy, who, of course, has been leading a campaign against duck shooting for many, many years, said he felt shocked that the Premier doesn't have any empathy for the terrible suffering that native waterbirds have to endure every duck shooting season. And the Animal Justice Party's uh, Andy Medic uh, said Andrews needed a serious reality check. The majority of Victorians are begging him to take action and ban duck shooting, and he continues to side with a dwindling violent minority. I encourage every Victorian to remember that at the ballot box. And um, a number of uh, sporting identities, Peter Siddle, the former Test cricketer, and Shani Layton, who was an Australian netballer, and David Zakarakis, the Essendon footballer, have all come out and criticised him over it. So, um, but it's just, you know, it's just clear that they should just say, look, duck, duck shooting is out. And I think Victoria is about the last state left that allows it anyway. Yeah. 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 It's just what there's not that many other sports that involve killing things. I think there's a difference there. That's right. I mean, is it sport to, to well, of any sort of shooting of that sort? But is it sport to go out and have for fun, 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 kill some poor bloody animal? It's just living out there doing what it does anyway okay we'll take a break and on that cheery cheery note um we'll we'll go to um this interview um tell us again who it's with um yeah so it's from radio ecoshock um and it's alex smith interviewing timon mcpherson about the ipcc report that's just come out um, from 270 research scientists across 67 countries, warning of terrible impacts as the climate shifts. Yeah, when I heard this the other morning lying in my bed, I thought, really, we should replay this because even because six in the morning on Sunday, too many people aren't going to hear it. And I'm not yeah. sure how many are going to hear it on City Limits either, but I thought it deserves a wider audience than what it was getting at six in the morning. Yeah, here we go. Simon McPherson is Professor of Urban Ecology and Director of the Urban Systems Lab at the New School in New York City. He published articles in top scientific journals and helps edit the nature journal Urban Sustainability. 
You may have read his work in the New York Times or The Guardian. From New York, Timon McPherson, welcome to Radio Ecoshock. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's good to talk to you, Alex. Well, as I have told you in email, previous IPCC reports always seem too far behind the climate-driven extremes that we've already experienced, and so I, I don't often cover them, but this one seems a bit different. Is the scientific community starting to admit previous estimates of climate damage were underestimates, and why should we listen now? It's a good question. I think it's important to understand what the IPCC is actually doing the process is really an assessment of the scientific literature, right? And so what we're able to say and what we have said coming out in this most recent report from Working Group 2 is based on the rapid rise in adaptation literature, the really exponential expansion in understanding what kinds of climate-driven extreme events we can actually attribute to climate change. And so the difference between this report and previous report eight years ago is really a sea change in the scientific literature that's assessing the impacts of climate change already and uh, what we know about them. So it may seem that there's really a point of departure in terms of understanding the true magnitude and scale of the impacts and risks that are facing regions all around the world. It is a sea change, but it's also based on the fact that we know more now than we knew before. So I just wanted to kind of be clear a little bit about the process here is that what we can say is what we know from the literature. That's what's in the report. It's a synthesis of that over the last many years. And what we are seeing is that there are both current rising impacts and risks in regions all around the world, really dramatic examples of this in a number of city regions, and that the projections for how those risks and impacts may change is definitely going to increase over the next couple of decades because of the emissions that are already built into the climate system and the amount of warming that's already built in for the next couple of decades. In your 2018 book, Resilient Urban Futures, you argued for a positive vision for cities rather than planning for catastrophes, and that's it. But this IPCC report seems loaded with predictions of increasing catastrophic events, some of which will hit great urban centers. What do you think now? I think it's essential that we have a vision of the future that's positive, that there is one that we can actually lay out a series of goals and strategies that we want to get through. So what is our shared vision? What is the vision for a more sustainable future, a more equitable future, a more just and resilient future? There's really no way to move along a positive trajectory for our future without actually having a vision of that. So I don't see a disjunct between, on the one hand, helping to work with communities, with cities, with planners, with all sorts of diverse stakeholders to really start to articulate what that needs to be, what it needs to be in terms of transforming infrastructure, what uh, that vision needs to be in terms of the way even we transform the governance of our cities and our societies so that they can deliver on those kinds of goals. And yet at the same time, we need to have a clear understanding of what the likelihood is of risks and impacts that our communities, our cities, our regions are going to face. So these two are important to have together, a realistic understanding of what's coming in the near term and a vision for where we want to get to as a way of building an adaptation and resilience to those kinds of climate impacts that the report lays out. You specialize in urban ecology, but what is that? Urban ecology is really the study of cities as ecosystems. So if you think of 
150 years of ecology as a science, the way in which we studied forests, rivers, and streams as systems, we're now applying to cities. How do we understand cities as complicated systems, as complex systems, systems that we can manage, that we can transform, but we also really need to understand how they work. And I think this is also something that comes across really clearly in chapter six of the IPCC report, which is the recognition that risks and impacts in urban environments are both generated by the way we develop cities and by outside pressures like global climate change that creates change in those systems. So urban ecology is one field also with urban planning and other fields that take a very interdisciplinary approach to trying to understand the complexity of cities as a way of understanding how we can transform them so they can be more resilient and more sustainable. Well, looking at this report through the lens of cities, why don't we start with the more developed countries like in America, Europe, or Japan, or Australia? When we look through the Working Group 2 report just released, what are the key challenges for these more wealthy cities in the coming decades? Well, one of them is really to understand that climate change is a threat multiplier that's going to enhance current vulnerabilities. Because one of the things that we see in the cities that in the, in the kind of um, areas that you mentioned is that there's already built-in vulnerability because of the way that we've designed and built our cities. We've designed them so that they're unequal We've built in infrastructure that isn't resilient to the kinds of climate changes that we have now. So we know that we're going to have to retrofit and redesign certain aspects of cities, remake certain kinds of infrastructure, uh, whether that's raising roads or rethinking housing design so that it can be able to adapt to the kinds of extreme rainfall or coastal flood or extreme heat that our cities are going to be facing in the coming future. Now, of course, That depends on how fast and how deeply we make cuts in carbon emissions, because what we really have to retrofit and rebuild cities for is going to depend on the global climate hazard, how severe it is, which has everything to do with whether or not we can limit this to 1.5 degrees by the end of the century, or whether we end up at a two or two and a half degree warmer world. That two degree difference from 1.5 is really dramatic in terms of the kinds of climate extreme events that cities are going to be facing. What about cities in the Middle East or the tropics? One of the things I'm kind of amazed by in this report, and I hope this really stands out to people, is that when we look at the next couple of decades of the amount of climate change that's already built into our system, the amount of warming that's already built into the system, some areas are not going to be able to adapt. And especially if we move beyond a one and a half degree world. As soon as we start moving into a two and two and a half degree world, small island nations, polar regions, mountain regions may have very little ability to adapt to the kinds of climate changes that are going to be coming in those regions. So this is a pretty serious concern. And I think the report is trying to really highlight that in a way that both engages the need to do deep and rapid cuts in emissions for all nations around the world. Uh, as well as to emphasize the fact that we have to start building what the report calls climate resilient development, that we have to really bring in adaptation and resilience into every single aspect of planning and design. That's going to be essential in order to make sure that some of these places that are likely to get very hot in some parts of the world, 16 times as many people may be exposed to extreme heat, for example, than they were in the historical baselines. 
that's going to be very difficult to adapt to if we don't start building in those adaptive mechanisms right now and across all kinds of urban planning, design, uh, and architecture. We talk about making plans, but that depends on who we are because there's all these, well, maybe a billion people uncounted. The nonprofit Habitat for Humanity estimates almost one in four urban dwellers are outside the city planning and services, and you can call them informal settlements or slums. We don't know the real population. When record storm surges and droughts and heat records and floods reach them, really, is there any planning or adaptation going on? Is it possible? I think informal settlements and a lot of these communities where for many, many decades, people have been placed in locations that are prone to environmental harms, that are prone to these kinds of climate risk and impacts. Some of these areas are going to become uninhabitable and we will need to find places that are safe. I think what the report really underlines is that we actually have to engage in new governance structures and building more innovative ways to plan safety for those who are more marginalized, for those who are more low income, and that have already been facing uh, both historic and current impacts from climate change disproportionately compared to wealthy. So this is true in many, many regions of, of the world. And the challenge that you're raising is not a small one. Right. It's one that's going to really, I think, force some radical changes in the priorities that we make in planning and the even governance structures that we have that are able to prioritize investments, to mobilize finance for uh, bringing clean water, food security uh, and climate resiliency into some of these areas that, as you say, are large and that have been already experiencing climate hazards. If we don't slash greenhouse gas emissions, we go for the high carbon pathway that we're currently on, could it come to the point where millions of people face the choice of death or migration? We're already seeing this kind of migration. Recent estimates, I think, show that somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 million or more people have already been documented as uh, starting to move based on climate-induced risks. That's likely to increase one of the things that the report really highlights is that without deep cuts and rapid cuts in this next decade, the next 10 years are extremely crucial here in carbon emissions, that we will see much more climate-induced migration. This has a lot of potential impacts. It's not only that some places may become really difficult to adapt to, and one of the things that we're suggesting in the report is that it's very possible without limiting warming to 1.5 degrees or less, that as soon as we move to a potentially two-degree world, we will have areas that will not be able to adapt to the heat, drought, flooding kinds of extremes that they may face. That will drive more migration And that is on its own a massive challenge. But I think this also means that we're going to have to think at national levels, at city levels, about how we build in part of our own adaptation planning in a way that can receive climate migrants and provide safe homes in new locations for them. So I'm just bringing up that this is actually more complex than simply some places may be uninhabitable or the risks will be so high that people will escape, that they will literally move. But we also have to understand what that's going to mean in terms of where they go and how we create safer places uh, for those people as they're trying to move away from unsafe places. Yes, in my opinion, this coming climate migration could make the migration out of the Ukraine look small, and it will be persistent. It will happen over decades. So it almost sounds like 
humans have to figure out how to repopulate the world to live in a new climate? I don't know what the future looks like. I don't think any, any of us really do. And certainly the IPCC report is not predicting the future. But what we are is saying that the evidence that we have suggests that the next couple of decades are going to be difficult, that the climate impacts and risks are going to go up. And we have a window of opportunity to make sure that that doesn't continue until the end of the century and even beyond that. That we have a window of opportunity to both rapidly and deeply cut emissions and retrofit and even build new urban areas that are more adapted to the kinds of risks that we know are likely to come in the next couple of decades. If we do that, then we should, even if we overshoot 1.5 degrees, be able to bring down the global warming average to 1.5 degrees or less by the end of the century, stabilize the climate, and in the process of that, build new cities, retrofit existing cities in ways that can be more adapted to the kinds of climate risks and impacts that we're already facing right now. That may mean a reshuffling of a large percentage of the human population on the planet. Some of that shuffling is already happening. It's sort of a natural part of population growth. And so one of the difficult signals to really understand is how much of that is climate induced and how much of it is induced by other kinds of uh, changes or even threats that people are reacting to. But certainly we need to take the climate risks seriously and limit what really might be a driver, a climate driver of that kind of migration. So, Timon, here is the New York Times headline about this report. Climate change is harming the planet faster than we can adapt, UN. Well, the Working Group 2 report finds there are limits to what we can do to protect from climate changes. Talk to us about that, please. There are likely going to be areas of the world that if we don't cut emissions rapidly, and certainly that's one of the possible futures, not the optimistic one, that we will have areas of the world that are less able to adapt. I think that's kind of the difficult message that's coming out of this report, really, that there's something serious that we've got to take on here, which is the potential that there may be places in the world that aren't livable, that are simply too hot, too exposed to coastal flooding too exposed to long-term droughts, and they're simply not uh, places that we can have you know, high quality of life for people to live in those areas. That really changes, I think, the way we even you know, imagine our reality. We're certainly moving into a century and, and squarely in the middle of a century where our climate is changing and changing very fast. So coming to grips with that, I think, is essential for us to, one, think about how we can both at a personal level in our communities and our cities radically transform our consumption patterns, um, ways in which we prioritize decarbonizing our lifestyles, but also building ways in which we can adapt to that in multiple, just across multiple sectors. I mean, let's just be specific, right? This may mean that we are going to have to raise the height of roads and build ways in which to convey water through cities in a more safe way really building cities in a way that they can live with water in areas that are prone to flooding. I'm in New York City. We've had really devastating impacts from uh, cloudburst extreme rainfall events last year. And one of the things that's on the table is to try to understand how our road infrastructure has to shift to actually convey water through the city in a way that's safe and doesn't cause uh, harm both to housing and people and other critical services that they rely on. It means we have to think about how we can have building facades and building materials that reflect heat instead of trap heat. These are not new technologies. 
these are things that we already have on the shelf and we can deploy, but they have to be prioritized. They have to be incentivized and we have to mobilize the finance to make this normal and not a special case in the way that we're building cities now. This growth of cities that we're seeing, which is coincident with the rise of climate change and perhaps even one of the major drivers of climate change, is also an opportunity for us to harness that growth for a new kind of urban development on the planet in this urban century, for a climate resilient development that understands the risks and really rethinks the way that we build and design cities so that they can be more livable in this warmer future that we're headed into. Well, there are critics of this new report, and hey, science is based on self-criticism. One of the factors that seems to be missing, there's almost nothing about the fossil fuel industry itself and our popular addiction to those fuels. Why not? It's part of the structure of the IPCC, frankly. The report that is coming out in just a few weeks, which is the report from Working Group 3, will be addressing exactly that question. What is it that we have to do to deliver a decarbonized economy? What is it that we have to do to mitigate the carbon emissions that is driving this kind of climate change that's been clearly attributed to um, anthropogenic causes? That's really the responsibility of the second working group. And not everyone knows this, but the IPCC has three working groups. The first one is really understanding the climate hazards, and that's where we get the baseline projections from of what are is the range of scenarios. This report is focused on risks, vulnerabilities, and adaptation options. And the third report, which comes out in a few weeks, is really focused on the mitigation side of this. So it's not left out. It's simply not the purview of working group two. And you will hear much more about what we need to do and what we can do to decrease greenhouse gas emissions and control the rapid growth in warming across the planet. The top scientific journal Nature just published a summary article about this report by Jeff Tolufson. He says, quote, top scientists are skeptical that nations will rein in global warming. Timon, is that accurate for this collective work? And, and do you agree personally? There is, again, no true consensus of what the future is. It has everything to do with both how well we're able to adapt and really live in a warmer climate, in a warmer world, as well as how fast and rapid we're able to decrease carbon emissions, all greenhouse gas emissions, actually, to limit that amount of warming. So the difference between what we may need to find really innovative ways to adapt to for a 1.5 degree world or a two degree world or two and a half degree world are very different. That report I think is interesting though, in that when you talk to climate scientists, there's not that much optimism overall, given what we see in the commitments of nation states to deliver a 1.5 degree or less warmer world. And that's why you see this general pattern among those that were surveyed in that study that three degree seems more likely. Now, why is that? Why do we think that? That's because the pattern that we're on, that's the trend line that we're seeing. If you just map the last couple decades of what carbon emissions look like and you extend that line forward into the future, it looks roughly like a three degree world, which by every single study that we've assessed in this report shows a world that will be very difficult to adapt to that has climate extremes that frankly, many people don't even want to talk about. So that's obviously what we have to avoid. But I think what you're seeing is this extension of the present into the future that says we could end up 
in a much warmer world than any of us want to face. And exactly that recognition is why it's so paramount that the next five and 10 years that we are mobilizing the political will, the financial capacity to both decarbonize all aspects of human life on this planet in a way that can decrease greenhouse gas emissions and really limit that warning and take into account the fact that a certain amount of that warming is already built into the system. And so we have to adapt anyway. There is no way we are not going to have to adapt to a warmer world, at least for the next couple of decades. What else in this report would you like to tell our listeners about? I think maybe something we haven't talked that much about is the disproportionate impacts on vulnerable communities. Who's really bearing the brunt of climate-driven extreme events, whether it's flooding or heat waves or drought or even the interaction between air pollution? In cities all around the world, it's low-income minorities and immigrant communities who are really bearing the brunt of climate change. I think this isn't just something we have to recognize. It's that we have to build into the way in which we prioritize planning, prioritize policies, prioritize funding that is flowing to build in adaptation into our urban and peri-urban and rural environments in ways that prioritizes those who need it most. That is essential for an inclusive and equitable planet, and certainly for the kinds of things we say we want out of a more sustainable world, or is it a more livable city? It has to be inclusive, and it has to be one that is addressing the inequities in who is most affected by climate change. Timon, you just returned from a lecture. What are you teaching your students at the new school? Well, I just came out of a class um, called Urban Resilience, and the focus is really to try to understand the complicatedness of cities so that we can manage and plan them to be more adapted, to be more resilient, so that they can deliver equitable futures, more livable futures in an inclusive way. And that actually requires understanding that complexity of cities. It means we're, we're trying to talk about how do we shift governance? What is the role of engineers and engineering and transforming our infrastructure to be more flexible and adaptive to an uncertain future? It means thinking about the role of nature and the connection of humans to nature, the potential for conserving, restoring, and investing in nature in cities and around cities as a way to cool our cities, as a way to absorb stormwater and decrease the impacts of climate change. So one of the things I'm trying to get a handle on with my students is how do we do all of these things and understand the way they interact so that we're not, for example, building a certain kind of housing that might be resilient to one challenge, but isn't to another, or we're not investing in planting trees, but the wrong species that can adapt to a warmer world so they don't actually deliver the cooling benefits that we're planting them for in the first place. These kinds of complexities are really important to get right so that we're not investing in adaptation options that actually become maladaptive later. Timon, thank you for sharing your time with us. Thanks, Alex. Great to be here and talk. Thank you. Okay, you're listening to uh, City Limits on 3CR Community Radio. That was Alex Smith from Radio EcoShock interviewing urban ecologist Tymon McPherson on the recent IPCC report that came out. And now we've got Anna Langford from Act on Climate um, at Friends of the Earth on the line to give a little bit of insight um, further into what's happening, especially in Victoria. Yeah, as long as she hasn't committed suicide after hearing that, she'll still oh, be on dear. the line. Um, but Anna, um, your comments on that? 
Um, uh, yeah, g'day. Uh, good to be on the show with you guys. And, um, yeah, thanks for um, putting that interview on. It was really, really interesting listening. Um, I feel like the first thing that really stuck out for me as an important point is time and talking about how, um, you know, even though there are definitely these further climate impacts locked in, which will result in further disruptions and disasters, we do still have to forge a positive vision for how we want to plan cities in the future because, you know, if we don't do that, then we are stuck in reactive mode, just kind of picking up pieces after each disaster. Um, and I don't know if um, either of you have read Naomi Klein's book, The Shock Doctrine, but it's basically about how, like, you know, when when disasters hit, whether natural or um, human-created, like, the right-wing neoliberal um, interests in business and government, um, powerful interests, they are there ready to advance plans that they've already had for, you know, how they want to kind of reshape the economy after a disaster. Mm. And, like, on the left, we have to do the same thing. We have to have, like, a proactive vision ready to enact um, as these things happen. Yeah, that's such a good point. Um, and so, Anna, you've been working for, for a long time in Friends of the Earth, um, you know, trying to convince the Victorian government to commit to more um, cutting more emissions and uh, doing more climate mitigation things. Um, do you have much info on, like, the specific impacts on Melbourne as, like, a, an urban centre um, going forward into climate change? Yeah, so the interesting thing is I'll just give a little bit of background context to what we've seen from the Victorian government in the last few years when it comes to um, climate action. Mm -hmm. Basically, uh, yeah, as you said, at Friends of the Earth, we have specifically focused on the Victorian government for quite a few years, given um, the <laughs> very little possibility for action at the federal level. Um, and basically, you know, while we've had a federal government that's completely inactive and irresponsible when it comes to climate, um, we have seen really big advances at the state level. Um, and kind of what that... Uh, a key piece of legislation that started a lot of what we're seeing now was the Victorian Climate Change Act in 2017. Um, and basically what that requires the Vic government to do now is to set emissions reduction targets every five years to 2050 so that we're tracking how big the cuts are that we make along the way. Um, but also what it requires them to do is write a climate strategy for the entire state every five years. Um, and that's not just about cutting emissions, it's also about looking at adaptation um, and how all kinds of environments um, need to like be able to adapt. So they're looking at cities, building structures, waterways, um, different kinds of ecosystems. And I guess it's like, it's a powerful thing because it's something that citizens can... Um, have input into and it's forcing, um, you know, all levels of government to look at what are the climate impacts hitting Melbourne here and now, such as like the heat island effect um, or infrastructure that can't withstand um, flooding and what are they going to do in the immediate and long term to combat that? 
Yeah, and are, um, are they meeting those targets, though? That's the important thing. If they set the targets, they've got to meet them, of course. Are they, is that happening? Meet them and beat them, I think um, well, we yes. all hope. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I suppose, like, basically um, the first two emission reduction targets have been set so far. They're for 2025 and 2030. Um, and at the moment... Um, that is a commitment to cut emissions by 45 to 50 percent by 2030. Um, so that was what um, we were kind of campaigning for about five years for those targets to be, you know, um, as close to science-based as possible. Um, obviously, they weren't as high as what we wanted, but um, in the face of federal government inaction, they are, you know, double the federal government's current 2030 target. And I suppose, like, what we'll be doing now is fighting for policies that um, will get us way, way over the line when it comes to those targets and see really deep emissions cuts this decade. Yeah, so um, I just saw in the news that the Andrews government is conducting public consultations for a gas substitution roadmap um, that's outlining plans to achieve Victoria's emission reduction targets using electrical appliances for heating rather than gas, um, improving energy efficiency and focusing on alternative fuels such as hydrogen or biogas. Um, Do you have any comments on that? And do you know of any other sort of more concrete um, policies and and promises for how they're actually going to achieve targets? Mm, um, Yeah, so uh, basically that gas substitution roadmap... um, uh, that, that is, like, as you said, the kind of the way that the pathway out of gas usage um, industrially and um, on, like, kind of individual um, home and business levels will be charted um, out in Victoria. And uh, listeners might know that Friends of the Earth for many years ran a massive campaign across the whole state with farming communities um, to fight for a permanent ban on the the fracking technology, a way of extracting gas in Victoria. Um, But, like, we weren't just fighting for that. We were also fighting for all new gas extraction um, across the state to be banned onshore and offshore. And uh, that fight continues. Um, And currently what that looks like at Friends of the Earth is that um, there is this campaign starting up to... Uh, actually write like a a community version of that gas substitution roadmap. So um, I'll have to um, check where that's at exactly. Um, It can be um, found information on the gas campaign at the Friends of the Earth Melbourne website. Um, But, yeah, that's basically going to be like a community-led grassroots um, gas substitution roadmap that will be presented to the government. So making sure that, you know... um, we're presenting the case for the transition to happen as fast as it can um, and for social justice to be really baked in at every stage. So things like um, lower-income communities um, receiving those first benefits of moving to electrification and things like that. Yeah, Yeah. that's um, great. And also, if listeners want to get involved in any of the things that Anna's talking about, uh, we'll also put the details in the podcast notes, which you can find on 3cr.org.au forward slash city limits. 
Um, now, another project that you've been working on for quite some time is the Climate Impact at Work surveys. Um, do you have more to talk about them? Yeah, so I, I thought this would be cool to talk about because it is quite relevant to Simon's interview that you just played in terms of climate And, and really, Anna, in terms of climate change, anything that's cool is worth talking about, I would have thought. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and, uh, yeah, basically, like, just to explain the, this other current piece of work that we're doing, um, so it's called the Climate Impacts at Work Project, and uh, it's a thing that we're conducting with six Victorian unions, um, and it's this survey called Climate Impacts at Work that's being um, distributed to workers, union members in the different industries that these unions cover to ask them about how are they already experiencing different climate impacts in their workplaces um, and what do they want to see done about it. And it's really exciting project because um, I suppose, like, you know, we, we really do um, need to have the union movement as um, being super active on climate action so that we can see climate solutions brought in that have social justice and workers' justice at their core. Um, and this is like a first way to understand how are workers um, already experiencing climate impacts, um, whether, you know, what's the experience of, say, a, tra a train driver compared to a health worker or um, a hospital worker. Yeah, and once again, um, if you want to get involved in any of those things or if you're a worker uh, that wants to take part in the surveys, uh, we'll put all the info on 3cr.org.au forward slash city limits. Yeah, that's an interesting campaign. Going back to the gas situation, though, and you did mention the federal government, unfortunately, because in the last day or so, <laughs> while everything else is happening, they've, they've, they're handing out $50 million plus to some of the biggest fossil companies in the world um, to extract more gas. I mean, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling, isn't it? I did see that, yes. Um, God, I hope we're in the last, um, last few weeks or months or however long it is of this situation. I <laughs> can't believe how long it's been. Um, but, yeah, like, I, I think that kind of... I, I believe that that announcement was partly, like, in response to... Um, the gas shortages that are going to be experienced because of the crisis in um, Ukraine with Russia. Yes, it um, rises from that, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think that kind of points back to what we were talking about at the start, you know, like this is a, this is a reactive, regressive response to a disaster that will lock us into future fossil fuel usage. Like, it's not just a short-term thing. Um, and this is like a classic example of fossil fuel companies, disaster capitalists sweeping in when there's a disaster with, you know, their vision that they want to further entrench. Um, I suppose, like, we, we're seeing that every time we respond to a disaster, however we respond lays the foundations for how we'll do things differently in the future. So I guess for the climate movement, that's why it can't just be fix climate change first with whatever means necessary and then the economy later because whatever we do now to act on climate basically sets up whatever our future economy and society structures will be. So we have to build social justice in now.
and they need to change you. I mean, in the last day of his two contradictory situations where this morning on Radio National, Keith Pitt, the fossils minister, was interviewed and he, he said that the United Nations comment that Australia was an outlier showed they, you know, this is Australia's business, nothing to do with them, he claims. Uh, and he says the Peterloo Basin um, must be developed for fracking because it's, it's a matter of national security. And yet last night on the NITV News, we had the local Indigenous people from that area with a campaign yesterday and a protest uh, about the fact that it's going to destroy their lives. So mm. um, the government obviously doesn't give a stuff about them. Mm. Yeah, totally. It's um, it's completely outrageous. Um, and, you know, like when it comes to Indigenous sovereignty and the, the damage that it will do to the land and to um, their cultural landscapes, um, and also, like in, in the in it it being in the name of national security, just seems um, quite like ridiculous. When we just heard on the interview you played, time and talking about the massive unplanned migrations that will continue to happen mm. because of climate disruption, like you know the definition of national security will what of what it currently is will just totally. Um, go out the door as we move more into that situation. Yeah, I'm not even sure what national security means in terms of fracking the Beetleroo Basin, actually, but anyway, that's mm. Keith, Keith records it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the the work you're doing with um, with workers is interesting. Are you linked into Earth Worker with that as well? Because they obviously try to make a link between work and environment as well, um, those sort of areas. Yeah, um, yeah. So Friends of the Earth um, was part of originally setting up the Earth Worker Cooperative in the Latrobe Valley, along with Trades Hall and um, various unions. And um, I suppose like that's looking at uh, setting up the future, an example of the future economy in places like the valley when it comes to. Um, Annie, you're breaking up a bit now. Could you? Move around or something. Uh, and see. Yeah. Oh, that's sounding a that bit better? better. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh, thanks. Sorry. Not sorry. Sure Go what on. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah. So we basically like yeah we are working with um, Trades Hall and uh, these six unions on this project. Um, and I'll just um, I'll I'll let I'll list what the unions are so people um, get a idea of the different industries that are covered. Um, so we're working with Hospo Voice which is for hospitality workers, the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, um, the Community and Public um, Sector Union, the Rail, Tram and Bus Union, so all kinds of transport workers, the Australian Services Union, and finally the Health and Community Services Union. Um, so we're getting all these different really interesting perspectives about the ways that these workers are already on the front lines of climate impacts that are going to intensify and, um, you know, hit all of us at some point. Um, but we're kind of looking at it through like an occupational health and safety lens so that it's a way that unions can then take action to protect workers from the impacts and also advance um, climate action. Yeah, and um, speaking of union action um of course there's the next school strike for climate coming up this week on friday 12 p.m treasury gardens um i'm sure friends of the earth will will be involved there and um 
what do you think your um what do you think the the strikers are sort of looking for as demands um this time around with the strike yeah it's really exciting that the school strikes um back this friday um and yeah friends of the earth will definitely be down there um helping out on the ground and with a bit of a crew with our banners um and also i know there's a contingent of unions um joining the march from the trades hall so people can also meet there and go from there if you want to go with your union um and yeah i think um as i understand the there are the key demands um that the strikers continue to make in terms of um no new coal and gas projects um i think it's um like net zero emissions by 2030 or as close as possible. Um, and, yeah, basically just, like, looking at this being the crucial decade of action and how can we um, advance um, all of that as soon as possible. Yeah, I've got a feeling Keith Pitpony won't be there on Friday, <laughs> but um, it's a bit of a pity. And, uh, look, we're out of time, but, look, thanks for your time this morning. And... Um, it's a pretty, it's a, well, it's a very serious subject because as that interview showed, um, we are facing a real crisis unless we act very quickly. So um, Friday's, Friday's rally is all about trying to speed all that up, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and of course, if, if, it, if it sparks interest, anything that I've talked about that we're up to at Friends of the Earth and you want to get involved, um, you can head to the Friends of the Earth Melbourne website um, to see what times our different campaign meetings and things are on um it is a massive year with both a federal and state election so we'd love to have you involved in whatever way you're um interested in thanks okay yeah, look, thanks on. so much for that thanks for your time this morning thank you uh, Anna Langford there from friends of the earth and just for next week uh, you've got an interview lined up um have you not uh, yes, hopefully next week I'll be talking to an informal urbanism researcher, Redden Riccio, um, talking specifically about the San Rock settlement in Manila in the Philippines, um, but also in general about what is informal urbanism. As we heard briefly in the Radio EcoShock interview, um, almost one in four urban dwellers are in informal settlements, and so it's a big um, aspect to talk about, um, you know, from the from the view of climate change, but also from the view of housing and transport and all the other things that we talk about on city limits. Terrific. I okay, look forward to that next week. And don't forget, just before we go tomorrow, the the rallies around accessibility on public transport. Nine thirty at Brunswick Town Hall, eleven o'clock at four nine two Queens Parade at the hotel there in Queens Parade in uh, Clifton Hill and 2.30 at Chapel Street and Pram Town Hall. So hope people can get there tomorrow as well. So, yeah. yeah, awesome. Stay tuned for Anarchist okay. World this week right, and we'll, we'll yeah, catch you next okay. week. And thank yourself for keeping us on air. And I'll thank Karina, by the way, because she did the work team she and did. interview up for us. So, and she's not feeling well, so I hope she's feeling okay. And thank her again for her work behind the scenes. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.